of our existence that we identify as ourselves. The last aspect, or the fifth aspect, <coughs> is vijnana, or mind, our consciousness. And more than all of the other four, this one is identified with most strongly. We think it's the consciousness that sees and feels and does things. We think there's a doer inside of this body or inside of this mind. The consciousness is consciousness of seeing, consciousness of hearing, consciousness of thinking. <clears throat> and when we see things that are unpleasant, we get oppressed by that consciousness. When we hear sounds that are unpleasant, we get oppressed by that consciousness. When we feel unpleasant bodily sensations, this is also body consciousness. We can't control what we see, what we hear, what we think, what we smell, what we taste. These consciousness arise due to conditions and when the conditions aren't there, the consciousness is gone. In the West, for this aspect of mind, this consciousness, we sometimes use the word ego. I want to speak a little bit about this concept because there are many people in the field of psychology who are also meditators and we sometimes use the words for of western psychology in describing uh, meditation experiences and so there has developed some confusion as to just what atta is what anatta is what ego is and what egolessness is We all have an ego, and some of us don't like our ego, or what we think is our ego. But actually, ego is not the same as atta, and egolessness is not the same as anatta, because there are some functions in the ego which actually are strengthened in the process of meditation. One of these functions is synthesizing experiences. It is the ego's function to synthesize all of our experiences into something acceptable. And this happens, this function of ego gets strengthened and highly developed in meditation because there are many new experiences that we have to accommodate, we have to come to understand, we have to come to see clearly, and we have to synthesize into our mental, physical process. But at the same time as the process of meditation is going on, the understanding of anatta, or anatta, is getting stronger. So in fact, anatta is not egolessness. Egolessness in the Western psychological tradition is really a disintegration of some inner self and it's a real psych it's a psychosis actually whereas meditation need not lead that way and in fact doesn't <laughs> but in the process of meditation there can arise very disturbing or sometimes disturbing experiences just due to the inherent nature of experience, the rapidity of change and the amount of unsatisfactoriness and the insubstantiality of things, or as we perceive these characteristics of things, they can be rather destabilizing or potentially destabilizing. But in fact, it's the ego that puts them all together in some sort of way that doesn't destabilize us in the meditation process.
So as you note mental and physical objects as and when they arise, you become aware of these five aspects of existence, the materiality, the body, the pleasantness and unpleasantness of physical and mental objects, memory, perceptions, remembering pleasant and unpleasant things, the intention in the mind to do everything that is done, and all the other mental formations that lead you to speak and act, and the consciousness, the mind, the seeing consciousness, the hearing consciousness. And you begin to see these things arise and pass away. And you begin to see that they really operate on their own conditions. You can't really control them. And they're not really all that satisfying in the long run. In the short run, any of them may give some temporary pleasure, but when that pleasure or when that satisfaction is gone, there's a hankering after more of it, and there's the having to seek after it, which is the unsatisfactoriness again. All of these five aspects of our existence are void of a self. They're empty. There's no permanent substance to them. They just arise due to conditions. They create an illusion. The five of them together create this illusion of myself. But in fact, when we analyze them, we see that they are individually arising and passing away phenomena. I have an example to tell you about, to show how this works. One yogi reported to me that he was having a bad day. <clears throat> and he was thinking, oh, I'm so depressed. Thinking he was depressed is, of course, a mental feeling. It's a weight in that. And he was attached to it because he was attached and wanting something other than unpleasant mental feeling. But he didn't note it. So he said, well, in order to relieve this depression, instead of noting it, I'll listen to some music. Then I'll be happy. So he thought these intending to listen to music is, of course, this volition in the mind, which is sankhara, and he was attached to this hopefully pleasant experience, pleasant mental experience or pleasant physical experience of listening to some music. This also was not noted. <laughs> Thinking that he was going to listen to the music is craving for a pleasant experience. So you can see there's a, a mental state, a negative mental state or an unpleasant mental state, which went unnoted. And because of the ignorance of knowing that mental state, he had the intention to do something. And that, was, that intention was unnoted, and so he did something. He got a tape player, he got a tape, he got some headphones, and he came into the meditation hall early in the morning when there weren't many yogis here. So he plugged in the tape, put on the headphones, put a blanket over his head, started listening to some music. <laughs> All unnoted. <clears throat> he was lost in his own world. Thinking that he got the tape, the player and all, is attaching to his actions as himself. Wanting to listen to the music is again craving for pleasant experience. Remembering how good music is, how good music is for getting out of depression, is again memory. All of these are momentarily arising phenomena that if they were noted, would have stopped. But since they weren't noted, he was in 
musical meditation heaven. <laughs> Until he got a tap on the knee. Someone handed him a note that said, please turn the music down. <laughs> Little did he realize that what he was listening to, the other yogis were also listening to. <laughs> and so on and so on, and the teachers found out, and there was a conference, and and, and, and and this went on for, in his mind, for several days. Wouldn't it have been better to note depression, <laughs> depression, instead of all of this embarrassment and guilt and remorse and remembering and we do he gave me permission to use this as an example so I'm not embarrassing him we all do it all the time we don't know we forget to know we have intentions and we follow up on these intentions unknowingly and we get ourselves into a mess Life, basically. <laughs> There's another way. If when these objects arise, these mental and physical objects, these five aspects of our existence, if when they arise, we note them, and if we see the unsatisfactory nature of them, if we see the oppressive nature of them, we will overcome our desire for them. If we see the impermanent nature of them, we will overcome our belief that they last forever in our pride in having things that last forever, or even that we last forever, or that our body lasts forever. If we note the insubstantial character of any of these five aspects, we can overcome wrong view. We can see them as they truly are, arising and passing away. So when you come, to meditate, you get the instructions and you are told to note rising, falling, as much as you can, and secondary objects if and when they arise. And so we understand that there's these mental and physical things happening and that we are to observe them. This is understanding the theory of mentality and materiality. When you actually begin to note, <clears throat> and you begin to see and experience and observe clearly the physical processes and the mental processes, <clears throat> the rising and falling, the bending, the stretching, the seeing, hearing, whatever it is. One of the first glimpses into anatta that we get is, my mind is out of control. And it's true. We begin to see how unmindful we really are. And we remember we're supposed to be mindful, but we can't be mindful. This is our first glimpse of this characteristic of insubstantiality, out of controlness, anatta. If we practice continuously and we get good at noting the rising and falling in other objects, we begin to see that indeed there is just this mental, physical process happening. And if we continue to know, and we begin noting intentions, we begin to see that it's not happening randomly. It's happening because of cause and effect. We intend something to happen, and it does. We intend to move, and we do. We intend to see, and we see. Without the intention, it doesn't happen. When we begin to see that there's just a mental, physical process happening, and it's happening because of cause and effect, it's another level of understanding the characteristic of anatta, that there's no one who's doing it. It's happening. It's a scientific process, if you want to call it, cause and effect, mentality, materiality. When we continue to practice <clears throat> more, 
we begin to see how each object arises. We begin to see how they persist, or they last for a period of time, and then they pass away. We begin to actually directly perceive the impermanent nature of these objects. Before, it was rather our understanding that our objects were arising and passing away was based on thought, because we could think, yes, it's here, now it's not here. But as we practice, we begin to actually see the arising and see the passing away. And the impermanent nature, the permanent characteristic of all of these phenomena becomes very clear. When this happens, we also begin to see that there's not much to them. And they don't really offer us what we want. They don't satisfy us in any appreciable way. We begin to see that they really are unsatisfactory. This is the characteristic of dukkha. And we see also, we begin to see more clearly, that we don't have any control over them because they just arise and vanish of their own accord rapidly. And at this point in practice, there can be a tremendous flood of experiences, mental and physical and emotional, and all of your senses can seem to be operating at one time. And it can be extremely uncomfortable and at times very painful. But if these are each noted as and when they arise, the ability to see the momentariness of objects becomes clearer. When we see that objects are completely insubstantial, and when we see that the consciousness that knows those objects is also insubstantial, we really can't have much attachment for them or much desire for them. We become very dispassionate, actually. We just see things as they are without any interest in them. No aversion to them, no liking for them, no interest in them. We just see this is what it is, arising and passing away, not satisfying and out of control rapidly. This insight is essential and very important for you to see because it brings you to the point of dissatisfaction or dispassion for all of your experiences. And when you have this feeling of dispassion, it's not aversion, but it's dispassion for all of these experiences, then there arises in you, or there can arise in you, the true wish to be liberated from them. And that wish is not a craving, but it's an insight. And that will lead you to the equanimity of mind which can see every object arise as it is and just notice the characteristics without getting infatuated or adverse to any object. At this point in practice, the ability or the observation of the characteristic of anatta is at its peak. We can just observe the fleeting nature of everything without identifying any of its individual characteristics. It becomes extremely clear, vividly clear at that point that there is no self, 
nothing that's a living entity or a permanent residing being <clears throat> in this mental physical process. There is just the momentariness of phenomena fleeting past the mind's eye. These are the five aspects that the Buddha identified <clears throat> as what we grasp onto and call ourself. <clears throat> Through the practice of noting, you can begin to disassemble your concept of yourself and just see things as they are truly happening, rapidly arising and passing away. <clears throat> As I was preparing this talk over the past week or ten days, I read all this information and I reflected on, on it and I could understand it and put it together in this talk. But somehow it was feeling rather insubstantial, <laughs> rather like there wasn't much to it. and. I was talking to a few staff people and they were asking me what I would talk about and I told them. And as I was trying to explain to them what I was going to talk about, it still seemed rather not like there's much, still not really clear what this anatta is all about. And I finished my talk, preparing the talk a couple nights ago, and about four in the afternoon. And I went out on the lawn just as the sun was going down. <clears throat> And it was one of these days that there's this gray bank of clouds overhead. And the sun was visible. It was just a red ball kind of slowly sinking into the horizon. And it was not a lot of fanfare. It wasn't very colorful. It was just a red ball going down. And the trees were naked of leaves. And I wondered if trees identify themselves as having leaves or not. <laughs> I didn't know. And I just got a rather bleak feeling, a rather naked kind of, you know, gray November. Everything is gone, going away, and it's just I was noting everything, of course. And the wind was blowing, and it's just, there was some very clear perception of the emptiness, the insubstantiality of everything we experience. And I began to recall my practice, a period of time of my practice in Burma. After several months of a lot of self-pity, months of self-pity. Oh, poor me, I can't do this. Oh, poor me, I'm in Burma, the food, the weather, my friends, the blah, blah, blah. After all of that, there began to be um, pervasive melancholy set in. And I remember reporting, at that time I was reporting every day. Every day I would go in and the first thing I would report is, how much melancholy and I was noting. And at one point, Sayadaw explained to me, or he said to me, or he offered the information that when you get into practice and you begin to see the emptiness of all phenomena, you realize that there's nothing. There's no memory. There's no future, there's no person, there's no experience, there's nothing that can do anything for you. Nothing. It is all insubstantial.
So I have a favorite poem that I'll read to <clears throat> close this talk. It's called The Snowstorm. It is the first and last snows, especially the last, that blinds us most, Thoreau once said. And I wonder what he possibly could have been thinking, since snow is always with us and keeps falling in its proper season, the generations accepting it without first or last, save perhaps this. There is a single snow which a child stores in her memory. The first snow when she falls in a drift. The first snow that reveals secrets like the flakes on her sleeve. Always to be remembered because it brought knowledge of crystalline perfection. Infinite diversity to be tasted with her own salt tears, the immeasurable prodigality of the universal worlds in which we are lost, the first and blinding snow of childhood. Second, the view from the farm window, the last, with the black guest waiting at the door, and outside falling and falling across corn shocks, wheat stubble, plow land, the whiteness of the void. Lucretius must so have seen his atoms, created out of them a world. A wind whipped the flakes aside, perhaps, a snow flurry that conceived a farmhouse kitchen and a stove made fields, made animals, made men. Look, can you say I am not composed of snowflakes? My eyes are filled with them. They are falling faster now. Suppose I go outside and join them. Could you say that I was ever here? No. No, the first blindness is to see the ultimate minute perfection. That is the illusion of the water drop. The second is to believe the black guest at the door. My friend, there is only the blindness of a million years of snowfall. And you and I, wraith, wraiths, discoursing as we fall. Do not bother to throw up the window. Snow is already blowing. The room is disassembled. Our substance, the room's substance, is snowflakes. We are falling apart now. We have re-entered the eternal storm. So let's sit for a while after the Buddha's enlightenment, he found his five companions and he preached to them his first sutta, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion. After hearing that sutta, these five ascetics practiced for five days and each of them <coughs> at the end of five days, had attained to the first stage of enlightenment. On the fifth day after giving the first Dhamma talk, he gave the second Dhamma talk. And he talked to the same five, now they were bhikkhus. <clears throat> and he talked about the characteristic of non-self. It's called the Anatta Lakana Sutta. The five bhikkhus that were listening to it were paying careful attention to their nama rupa, noting things as and when they arose. And it, 
And at the end of the discourse on the characteristic of non-self, they all had attained to the highest stage of enlightenment. So, please listen carefully. <laughs> you may have some enlightening insight. Anatta, or anatta, is one of the three characteristics of all phenomena. The other two are anicca, which is <clears throat> the impermanence of all things, dukkha, which is the unsatisfactoriness of all things, and anatta, which is the insubstantiality of all things. Anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature, are quite easy to perceive in daily life and particularly as yogi in meditating, you can see things changing quickly and you can see how unsatisfactory or how painful or how much dukkha they are. But the characteristic of anatta or anatta is sometimes not so obvious or it's a little more difficult to understand. And this leads to considerable misunderstanding, actually, on the part of many people. So I want to speak a little bit of how the Buddha spoke about this characteristic, so that you can get, so that you can understand the theory of it. And then in your practice, you can verify it, or you can at least attempt to verify it. Anatta means not-self, or not-atta, variously translated as insubstantiality or impersonality, no-soul, no-self, and sometimes wrongly translated in the West as egolessness. I'll explain more about that later. Actually, the doctrine of anatta is the central doctrine of the whole Buddhist teaching. It's essential if you're going to be If you're going to have a full understanding of Buddhism, it's essential to understand this characteristic. The Buddha said that whoever is not clear that phenomena arises due to conditions and that actions are conditioned through ignorance and craving, they think that there is a being or a soul that understands that acts, that causes to act, or it's a being that is born, that sees, that hears, that does things, that has pleasant feelings and unpleasant feelings, has desires, grasps objects, and that it's a being that dies and is reborn. But he said, this is not so. He says, neither inside nor outside of this nama-rupa process, of this process of mind and matter that we're observing here, neither inside nor outside of it, is there anything, in an ultimate sense, that can be regarded as self-existing being or soul? There's no abiding substance. In fact, there is only a continuous, process of mentality and materiality arising and vanishing, all conditioned phenomena. But we don't see things that way most of the time. We identify with things and we call it ourself or our soul or our being or we, me, I. What is it that we call I? The Buddha identified five aspects of our existence that we experience and identify in such a way that we believe it is I, we believe it is me. And attendant with that, we believe that others are 
them or he or she. These five things I want to talk about tonight. The first is rupa. It's materiality. It's the body. It's the eyes. It's the sights and sounds. Rupa. The second is vedana. Vedana is feelings, the pleasant and unpleasant feelings in the body or in the mind. The third is sanya or perception. It's remembering or it's recalling. It's having memory. The fourth is sankara which briefly defined are the activities of mind that lead us to do things, sankhara. And the fifth aspect of our existence that we grasp onto and call me or mine is vinyana, or consciousness, our mind. The Buddha said that these five aspects of our existence arise collectively all the time. But there is not in any one of them, nor in any combination of them, anything that is permanent, residing, living entity, being, soul, creature, whatever you want to call One time there was an enlightened nun named Wajira who was being harassed by Mara. Mara was trying to disturb Wajira and was asking her, what is a being? What is a person? How is a person formed? Where did they come from? Who made you? How did you come to be? And Wajira was insightful. And she said, why do you, Mara, fall back on being? Don't you have wrong views? This being is only a heap of conditioned processes. A being is not to be discovered here. Just as the word chariot is used for a combination of parts, so also the word being is conventionally used when these five aspects are present. So what rupa, or what materiality, is grasped and conceived of as a self, or as the most intimate, integral part of me? The eye, the ear, the nose, the ability to taste, the ability to feel, the ability to think. Because we have these capabilities, they're material phenomena, we identify with them. We say, I see. Actually, seeing is happening. If there was a corpse, it would look just like a human being. And yet we wouldn't think that there was a soul or entity in it because it no longer has the capability of seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching, smelling. So it's that quality or that ability in us or that we experience that we identify as myself. It's obvious that we're attached to our bodies. You only need to look at the amount of advertising devoted to beautifying it and fixing it up and keeping it young and clean and this, that, to know that we're really attached to our shape, our size and our color 
And this is identifying with and grasping on to rupa as a myself. But why isn't rupa, or why isn't materiality myself, or, my, or a living entity? The Buddha says for two reasons. Because materiality tends to afflict and cause distress and oppression and suffering. And secondly, because it's out of our control. It cannot be managed as we wish. It's obvious, without looking very deeply, that our bodies give us a lot of trouble. Just try sitting still for an hour. The pain that you feel, and the heat, and the itching, and the discomfort is your body giving you trouble, causing you suffering, causing, oppressing you, afflicting you with uncomfortableness. And the body gets thirsty, and the body gets hungry, and the body has to go to the toilet, and it gets hot and cold. All of these experiences of our bodies oppress us. And what integral part of us would want to oppress us all the time? How can that be our innermost being that bothers us and inflicts us and oppresses us all the time? How can that be? And it's also equally obvious that we don't really have much control over our body. It's born, and it goes through, it goes on automatic pilot, and at some point down the line it dies. And there's not a lot we can do about it. We can eat healthy and get exercise and fresh air, but it's going to go its way, and we can't control it. Neither can we control the senses. We can't say, okay, body, I want you to only feel pleasant for this hour. It doesn't happen. Or when we're sitting and we're comfortably quiet in this quiet hall, and some noise starts outside, we can't say, okay, ears, stop listening. I don't want to hear this. We can't control our bodies. We can't control our senses. Because of that quality, it cannot be our self, our innermost self. Can't be a living entity. It's out of control. It's just a material process that happens due to conditions. When there's a sight and the eyes are open, you're going to see if you have attention and so on with the rest of the senses. The second aspect the first is rupa. The next four aspects have to do with the mind. They're different functions or parts of the mind. Second is Vedana. Vedana is the pleasant and unpleasant physical feelings or sensations that we have in the body, and the pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant mental feelings that we have or that we experience. We say, I feel pleasant or I feel pain, but in fact, it's not really I. It's just the experience of pleasantness arising and passing away due to conditions. Every time we see or hear or taste or touch anything, it is accompanied by a vedana, a feeling. There is a quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness to every sensory experience. And because we like pleasant experiences, we 
devote our lives to experiencing them and having more of them and getting more of them. That very seeking after pleasant experiences causes us immense trouble. In this way, feelings, pleasant and unpleasant feelings, cause us suffering, oppress us, inflict dissatisfaction on us. The most obvious sense for pleasantness and unpleasantness, all of them have a lot of pleasant and unpleasantness, but when we eat, pleasantness and unpleasantness is particularly noticeable but not more noticeable than the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the body, the touch sensation. As you know, you can get very sensitive to the slightest pleasantness or unpleasantness in the body. A single little splinter in one little finger and the whole body is upset. Or, what should I say, the whole mind is upset. When we look at a rock or a log, we know that it doesn't have feelings. So we believe that there's no living entity in it. And yet when we ourselves or see another being or creature that does have senses and has feelings, we believe that there's something in there, a living entity inside of that thing that we're seeing that is experiencing these pleasant and unpleasant feelings. We think there's someone or something inside of us or inside of dogs, but we don't believe that there's something inside of a rock. So it's this ability to feel pleasantness and unpleasantness that we identify as being me. But in reality, these feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness arise due to conditions. When the conditions are there, we feel the experience. When the conditions are gone, we don't feel the experience. We can't make them come, and we can't make them go. I don't need to catalog the types of unpleasant experience that you're experiencing here as yogis. You report it every day. Tightness, pain, itching, hot, cold, hungry, happiness, unhappiness, sadness, joy, depression. What else is there? There's other things, but there's a big catalog of pleasant and unpleasant Vedana that we identify as being ourselves. It should also be clear to you who are noting that you can't control it. You can't experience only pleasant bodily sensations. You can't always hear only pleasant sounds. Because we cannot control Vedana or feelings, it cannot be ourself, our innermost, who we are. When you note each arising object, you become aware that these feelings arise due to conditions and they pass away due to conditions. And you know that they're changing. And you know that they're not pleasant. And with a little reflection, you can understand that they cannot be yourself. So the first aspect is materiality. The second is the sensations, the pleasant and unpleasant feelings. The third aspect that we grasp as ourself is sanya or perception. It's the ability to remember or to recall. We say, oh, I was born you know, 25 years ago. Some of us were 25 years ago. 
and I'm living and I will die. It's this ability to remember things that we think is me. We think it's me, I, who am remembering what I did last week, last year, when I was a boy, when I was a young kid. We identify with this ability to remember, or our memories. Of course, memory is extremely helpful. We remember where we're supposed to live, and who we live with, and where we work, and how to work, and facts, and figures, and things like that. Memory is good, sometimes. When you sit in meditation and you start remembering painful experiences of the past or very unpleasant memories, this again is sanya, or remembering, recalling. It's not very pleasant. It should be obvious. And as Joseph has mentioned many times, maybe it's a function of age, maybe it's a function of meditation, memory doesn't last long. As we get older, many of us find that the memory is getting worse, which may be pretty good, except the wrong things get forgotten. <laughs> the way that memory works, or the way that sanya works, perception works, is that the perception in one moment gets passed on to the next moment. And so it's not that there is a catalog of movies in there that we just pull out and rerun every once in a while. It's that the function of remembering gets passed on from one moment to the next, even from one lifetime to the next. So in some cases, some people are able to recall experiences in past lives. Not that they existed in the past life, but that the perception, this function in the mind, has been passed along from a past life to a present life. And it's, some people are able to recall such things. When we think that it's I who remember, or I who can recall, or I who have all these stored memories, we are grasping at perception as being an entity, or a living being, or myself. But it happens because we're not really paying close attention to what is actually happening in the moment. We're not truly aware of the arising nature of objects and the passing away nature of objects. So you might ask, well, what is the difference between the perception of something when we see it and the noting of something when we see it? Perception perceives the object in such a way that it can remember it. It sees its shape, its form, its color, its characteristic. It identifies it in such a way that it can recall it later on. This is the function of perception. Noting, on the other hand, merely takes, merely recognizes the arising and passing away of the object, the unsatisfactory nature of it, and the insubstantiality of it. This is noting the object rather than perceiving the object. It's not identifying color, shape, form, function, and characteristics. It's just seeing the impersonal nature, the impermanent nature, and the unsatisfactory nature of the arising object. It's like during a snowstorm, if you went outside and you watched snowflakes falling in your hand, You'd see a snowflake, and an instant later, you'd see a drop of water, because your hand would melt it. It's thinking that that drop of water is a snowflake, or was a snowflake. It's not. A snowflake is a snowflake, a drop of water is a drop of water. 
But it's that memory getting in the way of just seeing the drop of water as a drop of water. This is sanya, or perception, the ability to remember. The fourth aspect that we grasp hold of as ourself is called sankharas. It is the mental activities that lead us to perform physical and verbal actions. It is, there are 50 qualities or functions in the mind. The primary one that moves us to act is volition. It's the intending to do something that moves all of the other mental and physical factors into being and actually something happens. Either you speak or you move or you act. So that when you want to sit from standing, the intention to sit is a mental function and the actual sitting process is a, root, is a material function. There's no self there. There's mental things, mental functions arising and physical functions arising due to conditions. You move because you intend to move. Or there is movement because there is an intention for movement. But there's no one inside of there who is intending or who is moving. Again, this aspect, these mental formations, tend to cause us discomfort and oppress us and to make life miserable. Because, for example, yogis, you want to come in the meditation hall and you want to be a good yogi and you want to note the rising and falling for an hour, or for a while anyway. And what happens? You sit down with the intention rising, falling, and pretty soon the mind is going somewhere else. It's because there's an intention to do it. We can't control the mind. We can't control our intentions. We want to be mindful noting all the time. We want to sit still. And this intention in the mind or this volition in the mind starts getting agitated and says, move the body, move the body, get more comfortable, get more com don't endure this pain. And it's just this little thing in there insisting in the mind, move, 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 and pretty soon you move. It's because this function of mind has insisted that it be taken care of. we can become aware of this functioning of mind along with all of the other functions of mind. But particularly this function of volition or intending to do something. It's why we instruct you to begin noting intentions as much as possible because you begin to see the mind in its more intricate and delicate operations. And you see that nothing can happen if there's not an intention. So you can begin to perceive or observe and note more of your mental and physical actions when you begin to note intentions. These sankharas also, these mental functions, arise due to conditions. When those conditions arise, you will experience thinking or acting. And when the conditions cease, the action will stop. You don't control it. This is the fourth aspect of our existence that we identify as ourselves. <clears throat> 